Hello and welcome to Cover to Credits, the bi-weekly podcast where we discuss books and their movie adaptations. I'm Ian George. And I'm Adina Hilton. In this episode, we'll be discussing Jane Eyre. Jane Eyre was written by Charlotte Bronte and was published in 1847. And the film adaptation, which came out in 2011, was directed by Carrie Joji Fukunaga. We are finally doing Jane Eyre, and I couldn't how, be more excited. How excited are you, I'm Dina? I'm so excited. <laughs> um, listeners may not know this, but this is probably one of my all-time favorite books ever. Yeah. I always say that it's my favorite. I mean, I don't really have a favorite, but it's really easy to pick something that's really solid and good and yeah. that you've loved for a long time. And for me, this book I read first in high school, and I've read it many times since then. Every time I read it, I get more out of it, and I enjoy it more. How many times do you think you've read it at this point? Maybe five. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's a dense book, but I loved it. I mean, I really enjoyed it. And something I thought was so impressive about it was like the pacing. Yeah. Like despite how big it is, I felt like I could almost like pick it up again and start from the beginning. Yeah. Because like you were saying, I feel like there's more context now and like more to like mind from the story kind of knowing where it goes and everything yeah and reading it as a teenager i had totally different experiences than reading it now as an adult right and i feel like i understand the material in a, in a very different way and i mean this book is a classic for good reason right it really holds up it's an amazing coming of age and romance story and it's a deep dive into one character who really feels just so alive and so real despite being fictional and also being someone who existed over 100 years ago. Yeah, I mean, such a wonderful protagonist in the story, such a strong character. And uh, yeah, I mean, should we just like get into it now? Yeah, I mean, I do want to give a little bit of background and just say that originally when Charlotte Bronte published this, she and her two sisters and Emily also submitted... Uh, books at the same time. So before this, they had published some poems. And then all three of them kind of put forth each a novel together. And they were published around the same time. And they were published under pseudonyms. So Charlotte published under Currer Bell, C-U-R-R-E-R. And then Anne was Acton Bell. (laughs) And uh, Emily was Ellis Bell. Okay, some very creative names. Yeah, they were meant to be kind of gender neutral to imply that they might be men. Okay. Because they thought that they wouldn't be published if they were women. That's kind of wild that that has just continued up until the present, basically. Like, I think of J.K. Rowling, you know? I know, yeah. The bias honestly continues. And I think it was really actually true. And critics really loved Jane Eyre when it came out. And they were like, it's obvious that this was written by a man because a woman could never write like this. Like, they literally (laughs) said that in the reviews. That's so funny because in my mind, I'm like, this is such a, like, a great like view from like a woman intimate perspective yeah of what it means to be like a woman and like from her position of like being a governess and kind of like amongst the like (laughs) i was like obviously wouldn't wouldn't people realize this was written by a woman no they were like uh no woman would write in such a bold and unfeminine way this has to be a man (laughs) that's so Uh, the sexism jumps out yeah but yeah there's actually two um Because all these books came out around the same time, the publishers kind of drummed up the idea that it was all published by one person. 
Oh, okay. And so Charlotte actually had to dispel all these rumors that she had written the other two books, especially because Wuthering Heights was also really popular, yeah. which Emily published. So yeah, there was like this whole conspiracy that like, oh, Charlotte Bronte had written all three and published under these different pseudonyms. But yeah, another interesting thing is that when this book was first published, it was uh, published as an autobiography. Yeah, I, you and told it was me like, that, and that's so interesting. But just as, like, a not real, like, kind of like a fun literary device to kind of, like, mess with people. Yeah, well, <laughs> it, it, it made me immediately think of the movie Fargo, yeah. which falsely at the beginning says based on a true story, just to kind of, like, because Coen brothers love to fuck with people. And I just love finding out stuff like this that seems, like, very, like, postmodern and, like, really, like, edgy and interesting. <laughs> people have been fucking doing it for, like... Forever. Forever, right? <laughs> like, it's not a new idea, the art of fuckery, right? Yes. <laughs> but yes, now let's get into the story, now that we have some background. So the movie actually does something interesting, which is to kind of begin almost in the middle of the story. Yeah. Without any context as to what's going on, we see Jane fleeing from a castle mansion, kind of going across like the, the landscapes and seeming to be just distraught. And then she's kind of like rescued. And then the story then starts to kind of be told in flashbacks, right? Yeah. And it does jump back and forth a little bit between like the quote unquote present and from her childhood onward. But because like these two uh, timelines aren't really that intertwined, we're not really going to like discuss it from that perspective at all no they're not kind of they're not thematically linked i would say they're more like just positionally interesting to kind of break up the narrative a bit yeah i i think it is an interesting way to tell the story or at least to begin it but it's not like um the recent little women movie yeah which split up the timelines in such a way that it felt like you had to explain it that way right like I think we're just going to kind of go by the main timeline of, of the book. Yeah. So we start in the book with Jane as a child, right? She is an orphan. Uh, both her parents died when she was very young. And she's being raised now by her aunt, who is very wealthy. And Jane is poor. And she's made to feel it, right? Her aunt and her three cousins, uh, her uncle has died, like, are very wealthy. They hate Jane. They treat her poorly. She's bullied by the eldest child, uh, John. And, in fact, we kind of begin the story with him, like, hitting her with a book and then getting into a fight. Yeah. So she's just being, like, just abused by kind of everyone, right? And it's really terrible. And this kind of culminates into a moment where Jane retaliates against John, right? And kind of, like, beats him up a little. And Jane gets sent to the Red Room, which is... <laughs> In the book, we know the room that the uncle died in yeah. and that no one ever really goes in anymore. And they so Jane is like terrified of it. Right. It's kind of creepy and ominous. And she's made to sit there. And I love the perspective of the book because she talks about imagining like a ghost walking in. Right. <laughs> and just like this building terror. Right. Where she's not really seeing anything. But at one point she sees just kind of a light on the yeah. ceiling. And she says in hindsight, like, oh, it's probably just someone outside, right? But, like, that's enough to just send her into a full-blown panic attack. Yeah, and she is screaming for help. She's screaming to please let her out, please let her out. And we have this horrible scene of, of the servants and Mrs. Reed, her aunt, coming up and then pushing her back into the room. And, and just very, like, roughly, like, 
denying her in her time of mental anguish, right? And she kind of like passes out. In the yeah. movie, she hits herself on the door and like <laughs> knocks herself out. <laughs> She's like, I'm going to speed along this process and just <laughs> knock myself out for a bit. I did find the um, the chimney ash yeah. kind of coming in being like really interesting. As where like it's a like a haunting thing. Is, like, is that just in her head or is that just something that might happen, right, with a chimney at that time that just <laughs> soot would fall through or something? Yeah. Uh, so yeah, this was a very traumatizing experience for her. And this kind of is a breaking point where the aunt decides to send her off to a school. But we get a great scene after they meet with like the headmaster of the school or the the owner of it or whatever his role is officially. And uh, Mrs. Reed kind of tells this head of the school like, oh, Jane is a terrible child. She's a liar and she's like manipulative and like all this stuff. And Jane is just so hurt by this. And I love it in the book. She's like, she this is a chance for me to start new away from you and your fucking children. And mm-hmm. you're already like tainting it. Right. Yeah. You're planting the seeds of my like terrible future experience. And so she's just like so fed up with Mrs. Reed. And she just has this moment that is so fantastic. She's like, what? Eight, Eight <laughs> at this time. And she kind of approaches Mrs. Reed And it said, and I love this, that they kind of spoke, she spoke to Mrs. Reed in a way that Mrs. Reed replied as she would to an adult. Yeah. And there's kind of this, like, pulling back the curtain, right? We're almost, they're both like, okay, let's just fucking, like, talk right now. Yeah, like, cut the bullshit. Yeah. Yeah. And Jane just fucking goes off on her. Yeah. She's just like, you're the worst person ever. She mentions the fact that, You know, your husband, my uncle, when he died on his deathbed said, take care of Jane, right? She's my niece. She's an orphan. I want you to take care of her and and bring her up as your own child. And Jane is kind of like, what do you think he's thinking now looking down at you from heaven? And this kind of like puts the fear of God into Mrs. Reed, which I just I just love that Jane is able to do this. And I just want to read a part from this because it's so impactful. So Jane is talking to Mrs. Reed here. I'm glad you are no relation of mine. I will never call you aunt again as long as I live. I will never come to see you when I'm grown up. And if anyone asks me how I liked you and how you treated me, I will say the very thought of you makes me sick and that you treated me with miserable cruelty. How dare you affirm that, Jane Eyre? How dare I, Mrs. Reed? How dare I? Because it is the truth. You think I have no feelings and I can do without one bit of love or kindness, but I cannot live so. And you have no pity. I shall remember how you thrust me back, roughly and violently thrust me back into the red room and locked me up there to my dying day, though I was in agony, though I cried out while suffocating with distress. Have mercy, have mercy, Aunt Reed, and that punishment you made me suffer because your wicked boy struck me, knocked me down for nothing. I will tell anybody who asks me questions this exact tale. People think you are a good woman, but you are bad, hard-hearted. You are deceitful. (laughs) Like, she just owns her. And I love, I I felt like the movie didn't do this scene the justice it deserves. Yeah. Because in the book, I wrote, my note, (laughs) my note uh, when reading was, Mrs. Reed is shook. Because Jane is just speaking to her in such a way. I wrote, it's almost like she's kind of possessed. Yeah. Like, she's speaking almost like an adult from this really, like, confident 
point of view. Almost as if God is speaking through her, right? Yeah. And like calling Mrs. Reed to task. And in the book, Mrs. Reed is like avoiding eye contact and like unable to like respond almost. And I love that so much. And the film just kind of plays it off like maybe Mrs. Reed is more annoyed. Yeah. Or just kind of pissed She more doesn't than anything. seem scared. No, but like in the book, she is like almost terrified of this child in this moment. And I love it so much. Yeah, I love getting to see Jane's fury and sense of justice come out here at the way she's being treated. Uh, but she does go off to school. She's sent to Lowood School. And we, when we get there, we see that the conditions at the school, which is like a charity institution for girls who can't afford to go to like a really nice school or are orphans like Jane, and they don't get very good food or very much of it. It's cold and wet and like it's just really kind of like not a nice place. Yeah, it's really, really awful. But there is one uh, teacher in particular. I forget her name. Miss Temple. Miss Temple, who is like very sweet and very kind and really does seem to be like doing the best with what she's given. But the uh, owner or the guy who runs the school has this very like strict principled idea of like women need to like do as much as they can with like as little uh, help as possible, right? Like, make do with what you have, because that's what God wants of you, right? Yeah, I mean, it's abuse. The children are yes. being abused, right? They're being whipped and hit. There's a scene where Jane's friend Helen gets whipped, right? Uh, Jane is meant to stand up in front of everyone and be humiliated because uh, Mr. Brocklehurst, the headmaster, uh, says that Jane is a liar. Like, you know, they're not being fed. The conditions are really bad. Like, it's just a, it's just a shitty situation. And unfortunately... Jane's only friend, Helen Burns, who is a very, like, sweet, martyr-like character, which is a very interesting contrast to Jane, yeah, right? yes. But she gets sick. Yeah. <laughs> as soon as they introduced Helen, who's just so sweet and, like, like you said, like a martyr and talking about, like, taking on this burden for God and all this stuff and is, like, so kind, I'm like, uh. She's dead. And then there's just one scene where she's, like, coughing. <laughs> And I'm like, oh, she's dead. You hear a cough in an old book <laughs> or movie and you're like, they're gone. She's done. And literally, <laughs> it did not take long for her to die after that. Yeah, there's an outbreak of typhus. And then uh, Helen specifically has consumption, which is uh, the old fashioned word for tuberculosis. And uh, a really interesting fact about this scene and this whole circumstance is that when Charlotte was a child, so she was one of six children. Oh, wow. There were six Brontes. Yes. And her, the, her two eldest sisters, I forget their names. I think like Maria and Elizabeth or something. They went to school and Charlotte and Emily were also there. And this school was very similar to Lowood. It was this like really poor condition type of school. There was a lot of illness that went around. It was not very well managed. And both of her eldest sisters died Either of typhus or tuberculosis, a little unclear now. Oh, my God. Yeah. So, you know, Charlotte and Emily were, were brought back, and then they were raised at home. And um, the other two children, uh, Branwell and Anne, never went to school. But they were kind of like, well, we got to raise them and do their school at home because we sent our kids to the school, and two of them died. Yeah. Like, you know, this was something that actually happened all the time. The thing I liked, though, was that and I don't know if this also reflects the reality of uh, what happened with the school that uh, Charlotte went to. But in the book, this outbreak of typhus and illness that 
killed like a lot of girls at this school brought enough public attention to it <laughs> yeah. that they were like, this is fucked up. Like, we have to stop this. And Mr. Brocklehurst, yeah. who was running it, kind of got demoted and like other people kind of took over. I think it was also implied, and I knew this from the moment it was described, that like he was probably taking money that were donations embezzling. and embezzling them. Because you meet his wife and daughter at one point, and they're like really dressed up, looking nice. Furs and jewels. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, he's definitely siphoning money from this school. Yeah. So I like that there was a kind of justice to this. And I mean, that's thematically really significant to this book too, right? A sense of justice. Yeah. And, you know, Jane has such a strong sense of that as a character. And so for the school to actually suffer, or at least Mr. Brocklehurst, I mean, to be fair, he doesn't actually suffer. No, he doesn't lose his job. No. But, like, there's enough attention that, like, things improved significantly. So I appreciated that addition. Yeah, and the school gets better. Jane spends the rest of her childhood there. And, in fact, she becomes a teacher for two years. And then at the age of 18, she's kind of like, I need to kind of do something with my life. My whole life I've either spent just living with my aunt or shut up in this school. And I really want to see the world. And we see a lot of examples of Jane's kind of restless spirit, right? And wanting to experience things and experience the world. So she ends up advertising her services as a governess in the paper, gets a reply from uh, Mrs. Fairfax of Thornfield Hall. And so she makes her way there to become a governess. I like that she has no idea what the circumstances, what the circumstance is of this situation at all. Like when she goes to the uh, the house and meets Mrs. Fairfax, she thinks she's the owner of it, that yeah. she's like the lady of the house. Oh no, she's just the head housekeeper. <laughs> and the girl that she's gonna teach isn't her daughter or like related to her at all, right? Mm-hmm. So she's kind of like thrown for a loop, right, like right out of the gate. But Mrs. Fairfax is a great character. <laughs> she's kind of simple, but like very sweet and warm and like a kind person, which I like. Played by Judy Dench in the movie. Motherfucking Judy Dench. <laughs> I was not expecting her. I, I would say that like, I don't want to say she's underutilized, but I'm surprised she took on this role. Yeah. Like Mrs. Fairfax is a, a good character. But, like... Not very meaty. No, no, not at all. Yeah, and like we said, so Mrs. Fairfax is the housekeeper. The master of the house, Mr. Rochester, is not there. He is often abroad, is what Mrs. Fairfax says, and doesn't come home very often. And the little girl that uh, Jane is going to be a governess to is Mr. Rochester's ward. So um, a very, like, kind of interesting setup here. And we also have, like, a really creepy servant that Jane meets because Mrs. Fairfax gave her gives her like a tour of the manor house, right? And it's this huge, like castle-like manor, right, with all these rooms and floors. And they go up to the third floor and they see this kind of like stout, very plain looking woman who seems like very fond of her drink, right? But there's like this weird laughter when they pass by her room. And Mrs. Fairfax says something like, oh, that's just Grace Poole. Like, she's a little odd. She's just alone laughing her ass off, right? Yeah, in her room up here. Yeah. <laughs> and Jane is like, hmm. Like, it's a little strange. Weird, but okay. Grace Poole isn't really a character at all in the film. Like, no. she's alluded to at one point. Like, she exists, but not in the to the extent in the book. I would say, though, that the kind of creepy element we're given in the book, or I'm sorry, in the film, is that at one point Adele says, like, Oh, 
there's a lady here who roams the hallways at night and, and she sucks is, your blood and she has long black hair and she can walk through walls <laughs> and it's just like generally very creepy for a brief moment. Yeah. Versus Grace Poole, who's just this like very unsettling person. Yes. But just for like unknown reasons. Let's get into the introduction of Mr. Rochester. Yes. Uh, one day. Jane decides to go out and enjoy, you know, the fresh air. She's going into town to uh, send out some some letters, right? I love in the film that, like, it is just, like, gray and with, like, gnarled trees. Yeah. It's so atmospheric. It feels like a Tim Burton movie or something. Like, yeah. So she's just out enjoying the fresh air when suddenly this horse, this man on a horse passes by. In the book, it slips on some ice. And in the film, it's scared by Grace. And by Jane? <laughs> no, Grace is there. She just pops out of Grace nowhere. Cool. Ha ha! <laughs> <laughs> uh, the horse is scared by Jane and topples over with the rider on. Yes. Uh, Jane is helping Mr. Rochester out. She doesn't know it's Mr. Rochester, but of course we realize later <laughs> that it's him. Um, there's this whole scene of him being like really grumpy because he's twisted his ankle, right? Yeah. And she kind of helps him get over to his horse. And it's only when she comes back from her trip and talks to Mrs. Fairfax and Mrs. Fairfax is like, oh, the master just came back and he's really pissed because he twisted his ankle. And she's like, oh. <laughs> I love how thick-headed Jane is in the book because like even with the context of like oh Mr. Rochester just got home and he like his horse threw him and Jane is like was he coming back home on this road and was like (laughs) still clarifying it I'm like Jane I think it's safe to assume that that was Mr. Rochester that you met yeah and she has her first formal meeting with him in his study and he wants to talk to her and they have this very interesting conversation where He kind of, like, accuses her of being an elf or a fairy. Yes. And I love that this comes up a lot with them. Yeah, because the way they met on the road, even when Jane in the book was watching the horse approach, she said it was, like, very, like, eerie and kind of odd. And she thought that it was, like, she kind of compared the experience to, like, oh, is this, like, this shape-shifting creature of the forest, right? And I love hearing from his perspective, like... You bewitched my horse. Well, he's just coming down the road, and there's just a woman there, and then his horse... And he's like, oh, are you a witch, or are you an elf, <laughs> right? Like, they both had, like, almost the same experience. Yeah. And he's kind of being weird, but Jane is able to kind of, like, match his, like, humor. Mm-hmm. And is like, oh, no, sir, like, the forest is, like... Doesn't have any green people or something anymore, she says. She's kind of, like, matching his wit. Yeah. And I love (laughs) Mrs. Fairfax is there, and she's just looking at both of them being like, what the fuck are you talking about? (laughs) Like, the book describes how she's, like, losing the thread of the narrative. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, and I mean, they have this rapport kind of from the beginning where he questions her and she kind of answers almost in, like, uh, a witty way, right? Or she's very honest with him where he's not expecting it. Like, he makes a comment of like, oh, do you find me handsome? And she's like, no. <laughs> he's like, oh, okay. And he's, she, he kind of starts giving her shit for it. Yeah. And she's like, I'm sorry, I should have said something else. And he's like, no, no. What what mispleases you? Like, uh, is it my nose or my forehead? You know, they kind of have this, like, like you said, a very honest and open kind of dialogue. Yes. And it is funny because... Mr. Rochester is described as being this, like, 
very solid, squarely built man, yes. right? He's like 35-ish, you know, approaching middle age, uh, craggy face and features, kind of dark brow, looks very like kind of angry all the time, right? And she says he's not handsome. And he kind of says to her like, well, you're plain. And yeah. she's like, I know. Uh, this is where this is where the movie fails, right? Because they have this scene where she says he's not handsome, and then he says that she's plain. Meanwhile, it's Michael Fassbender, yeah, and Mia Wasikowska. Yeah, so I think I mean Michael Fassbender is a handsome man. I think he has kind of a rugged handsomeness. Yeah. So like for Hollywood standards, like he kind of fits the bill like a little bit, right? But he's not stocky enough. No, he's not. He's very, like, tall and kind of great, lean. lean and kind of graceful in a way. I had to laugh, though, because, like, he's doing the whole, like, I know I'm not very attractive yeah. thing, right? <laughs> but, like, in every other movie, this is a moment that a woman has who looks gorgeous, except she has glasses on. Yes. And she's like, I know I'm not very pretty, right? <laughs> like, we never get to see a man do this. Like a, like a handsome man be like, I know I'm not that attractive. Oh, my gosh. And then... Implying that, like, uh, Mia Wasikowska is not beautiful, right? I think they do a better job with her. But here's the thing. She looks very, like, pale. Yeah. And, like, no makeup, right? But Her hair kind of pulled back in an unflattering way. Yes, but everyone looks like that in this movie. Yeah. So by comparison, she is as attractive as, like, every other, like, attractive woman, right? Yeah. Uh, I do not like her hair, though. <laughs> She has what I wrote down as helmet hair. Yeah. And I don't mean that it looks like she was wearing a helmet. I mean, she has on either side of her head two strands of hair that kind of loop under, under her, ears. her ears and kind of come back into her bun. I don't get like it. Like the bottom part of a helmet. Like a strap. Yes. <laughs> and I hate it. It looks terrible. Yeah, I don't like it either. I don't know what they're doing I with mean, that. maybe that's the point is to be unflattering. Because, I mean, Jane is supposed to not be attractive, so I don't know if they're trying to compensate with the hairstyle. <laughs> yeah, but it is kind of annoying, though. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I don't know. Like, Michael Fassbender, the whole I'm not attractive thing is not working. Mia Wasikowska, I think more so, but not within context of, like, the rest of the characters. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but um, getting back to, like, kind of their dynamic, they also have a conversation regarding her paintings and she's drawn, like, really abstract, weird shit. Really weird. Not landscapes. No. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I really loved hearing the description of this. And, like, they're kind of being figures that are integrated into nature, yeah. right? And being very, like, inventive and abstract. Like giants or angels or fairies or things just drawn into this beautiful landscape. Yeah, and I feel like this is a, a moment where... Mr. Rochester is kind of like really connecting with her like, oh, this is like interesting. He's like, like this is weird. Yeah, like this is some weird shit. Like, what are you into, Jane? <laughs> <laughs> he says something like, did these pictures come out of that head I see on your shoulders? Yeah. And yeah, I, I, I just really love this moment. They also have a scene later on that I don't think I think this is a single conversation in the film. But in the book, there's a later conversation where He's a little bit more manic. She thinks that he's been drinking. 
and he's kind of like, let's talk, let's talk. Like, pull your chair up closer, yeah. closer. <laughs> and then he's like upstanding and he's kind of rambling. Mm-hmm. And in some ways she's like able to hold the conversation. But then at other points she's like, I don't know what you're saying. Yeah. And she tells him that. She's yeah. like, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> like, you need to stop. I don't want to talk nonsense right now. Yeah. So she can't really quite follow what he's describing or talking about. But I like that she's able to kind of like stop him you yes. know and be like i don't this is this is weird and and to kind of like check him and yeah they have like just a really unique dynamic i think they can they feel like they can speak to each other like they haven't been able to speak to anyone else yeah and there's also in that conversation to the aspect of like he employs her. Yeah. And so there's kind of this awkwardness where he's like, okay, well, let's just say that, like, I don't pay you anything, right? <laughs> like, what would you say to me, right? Like, he's kind of <laughs> trying to, like, break down those barriers. Yeah. So, like, I think in two conversations, you quickly see that they have this instant kind of chemistry or able to talk to each other, right? Like, mentally. Like, mentally, they're kind of, like, on an equal playing field. For sure. Yeah. Even though he has way more experience and education than her, something draws them together, yeah. right? We also get a conversation which is not in the movie at all, all about who is Adele to Mr. Rochester. Yes, this is so important. I know, because, like, we never find out in the movie, like, why he she is his ward. Yeah. Right? What, what's the situation? Yeah. In the book, he's like, oh, let me tell you the whole story. Like, I had a French mistress and had, like, I paid for a house for her, all her stuff, then found out she was cheating on me and, like, cast her off. Uh, visited her later, and she was like, oh, this is your baby. And he was like, it doesn't look anything like me, but okay. (laughs) Yeah. And then she wanted to, and then she fucked off to Italy with, like, some random guy and left the kid, and then I took her in because she had no one. And I told her that her mom died. (laughs) (laughs) I I really, I think this story is so important for Mr. Rochester's character because it shows that he, like, for the most part, like, seems to try to do the right thing, right? Yeah. Even though he's a dick about it. Oh, he's a dick. And, like, (laughs) and he's very much, like, I don't like children. Like, I didn't want this, right? Yeah, and I also don't think she's my kid. And I'm like, all right. Which, like, I mean, how they describe how Adele looks, like, he's probably right, right? Yeah. Uh, So, like, I don't know, even given that context that he doesn't want to deal with kids, he doesn't like kids, and she's probably not his, he's still like, okay, I'm going to, like, take care of her Mm -hmm. right like i'm gonna i'm gonna do my best like it's not gonna be great but i'll do my best this is a very inappropriate conversation to have with your employee (laughs) i know he tells her about like when he caught her his his mistress cheating yeah and he was like watching them and like how he confronted them and yeah these are juicy details these are are very juicy this is scalding hot tea it is and it kind of he's alluding to this life that he's lived right he talks about kind of roaming the continent, seeking pleasure where he can and like living in sin and just kind of implies that like something happened in his past to set him on a bad path. And then he now he feels like he can't recover. So he's just going to enjoy his like descent into hell, essentially. Yeah. Uh, I also want to mention one scene. I think from what I read, this is the only scene added to the film that is not based on any context in the book, but I really like it. And it's just a scene where Jane and Mrs. Fairfax are sitting down to a meal. Oh, yeah. And you can hear Mr. Rochester in the next room playing piano. (laughs) But then he abruptly stops and you hear him shut the piano and his footsteps. And then like two seconds later, he's outside shooting his gun. (laughs) 
like a crazy. And Mrs. Fairfax says something like, oh, he's prone to like fits of a dynamic emotional range or something, you know? And I think it's a good way of demonstrating because that is true to the book as well, right? Like he's moody. Sometimes he's really happy. Sometimes he's bitter and avoiding people. And I think this is a great way to summarize that aspect of him in a condensed way in the film. Yeah. And it was necessary to invent a scene, right? To do that. Like it's not based on anything in the book. But I think it encapsulates his character really well. Yeah, I agree. It is a funny scene. Too. It is it's very funny. <laughs> <laughs> um, but things are getting kind of more intimate between them, right? He's trusting her with the details of his past mistresses. <laughs> yeah. They're talking a lot. And then one night, Jane is suddenly woken up because she hears a creepy laugh in the hallway. And actually, someone tries to like open her door. And it's very unsettling. Jane yeah. is like frozen in bed, eventually gets up and I think she finds a candle, right? And she goes downstairs, I think to talk to Mrs. Fairfax and she sees like a light coming from a room and she discovers Mr. Rochester in his bed and the bed is on fire. <laughs> <laughs> and she tries to wake him up, but he won't wake up. He won't. <laughs> this part was like so ridiculous. I know. I like slap him. Yeah. Like, I, if if shaking isn't working, hit him. She gets the water, though, and is throwing it on him to, to put out the bed. He eventually gets up and helps her put out the fire. And then is like, she explains what happened. And he's like, wait here. And then he leaves for, like, hours. And then suddenly comes back. And we don't get any of this in the movie. But in the book, Jane is like, what the fuck happened? Right? Yeah. And Mr. Rochester's like, what do you think happened? <laughs> and Jane is like, I mean, it was Grace Poole's laugh, like that crazy servant. She must have set fire to your room. He's like, that's exactly what happened, Jane. Yeah. And I dealt with her. It's fine. And Jane is like, why do you have her as a servant? <laughs> and he's like, let me take care of it. I, I can deal with it. It's fine. Yeah. Uh, I want to talk here about Mr. the portrayal of Mr. Rochester in the film and the book here and the differences. Because... Mr. Rochester in the book, I think of as being like more kind of like manic and a little bit more all over the place and like kind of funny in that way. Like (laughs) I like his character a lot because in the book, he's like he's kind of amped up. Right. Which makes sense. Like Jane just dumped a bunch of water on him. (laughs) He's soaking wet like his bedroom was on fire and he's still kind of like, you know, amped up over it. And like at one point she's like. Okay, well, I'm going to go to bed. He's like, what? You're going to go? Why would you leave me? Like, you saved my life. Listen, I need to tell you that, like, I owe you and I'll never forget this. She's like, okay, cool. Uh, I'm going to go. And he's like, okay, go. And then she's like, you're still holding on to my hand. And he's like, what? Am Am I? I? What? Okay. (laughs) Anyway, go. And then she's like, okay, bye. He's like, you're going to (laughs) leave. Like, this really funny, like, he's just being, like, so all over the place. And I think that comes through in the book really well, right? Like, he's kind of can be high energy and kind of an all over the place type way. The film plays him off as being like way more seductive, seductive and kind of like whispering and like their faces are getting real close. And he's like, you saved me. And like, I'll never forget that. And Mm -hmm. and like, obviously, it's going for like the sexual chemistry between them. Yeah. Which, I mean, I think they do, to an extent, have chemistry, right? For sure. And I think a lot of it is the 
like what's not said right because she's just in his bedroom yes you know and for that time yeah that's really scandalous Mm -hmm. but i think that's a good example of how mr rochester's character was kind of like toned down a lot in this film and in a lot of ways he just kind of feels like classic brooding period piece male lead (laughs) you know just kind of like brooding and like oh like he's so mysterious and interesting and hot right (laughs) but like i love him in the in the book where he's just just weird he's weird and kind of (laughs) crazy and like you don't know what he's talking about half the time right yeah and i really miss that aspect of him yeah yeah i agree he he kind of is just his own person he seems so unique in the book yeah And this is a very touching scene, right? He's holding onto her hand. He's like, you've saved my life, right? And it's kind of this moment between them. But you're right. He is kind of like all over the place. And Jane kind of doesn't know how to deal with him, right? I just love where she's like, I'm going to go. And he's like, okay. And she's like, please let go of my hand. He's like, what? (laughs) Uh, so after the the great bed fire, yes, uh, Mr. Rochester uh, leaves for a short time. But on his return, he's like, we're having a party. I'm having a bunch of people over. And in classic uh, Regency era, this is Regency, right? Victorian. Victorian, damn it. <laughs> in classic Victorian era. He's like, people are going to be over at the house for like two weeks. Yeah. We're going to party for like two weeks straight. Everyone's going to sleep here. And Mrs. Fairfax has to like get more staff. She has to hire people like from the inn and like like get people to cook and to clean and like it's a whole thing, right? Yeah. Uh, Blanche Ingram and her family, uh, as well as some others from the like fancy community, have come to visit. And Mrs. Fairfax tells Jane, she's like, yeah, a couple years ago, it seemed like Mr. Rochester was maybe into Blanche Ingram, but they didn't get married. Maybe now they'll get married. And so Jane is like oh my God, he's going to marry this woman. And she's really sad about it. Yeah. But she's like, I don't have any right to be, though, because I'm nothing and I'm no one. And it's just a very, like, depressing time for Jane because she's like, I have nothing to recommend me. And she's realizing that she is in love with him. Yeah. But there's, like, nothing she can do about it. I really love this part of the book because it really highlights the class difference and her position as a governess yeah where she's kind of like in the society of like mr rochester and like his peers but like not really right yeah and this is illustrated by her having to be in the room when they're all like around and talking in the in the parlor or wherever after the evening meal and in fact they talk about governesses in front of her and, like, diss them. Oh, yeah, and how, like, oh, we had so many terrible governesses. And she's, like, not in the conversation. No, and she's they're just... She's just there. Yeah, and they're just dissing governesses and her, basically, to her face. And I think this is really interesting, too, because Charlotte and her two sisters, you know, Emily and Anne, all did, like, have some time as teachers in schools and as governesses and just really hated it, Charlotte especially. She talked about having to take care of these, like, really bratty, spoiled children (laughs) and having, like, the, you know, her employers treat her like a servant and have her, like, oh, you also have to sew and clean and do all this stuff that isn't in your job description. And, like, it was a really kind of precarious social situation to be in because there was a lot of opportunity for abuse and there really wasn't a way to advocate for yourself. And you had not really 
many other options to make money. Well, and even if you wanted to leave some for somewhere else, you still like probably need that letter of recommendation from yeah. your last job. And like, so that's still power that you, you know, have held over you. Mm-hmm. I even like before Rochester insists on her being there in the parlor, like before that, when the party first arrives, Jane kind of has to like stay out of sight, right? Yeah. She has to kind of like, walk around the house when everyone else is in dinner or like use these kind of like back passages and stuff and just kind of really highlighting how she doesn't have a place among them. Yeah. And there's a lot of scenes with this party, right? There's, there's this whole, you know, dynamic between Mr. Rochester and Blanche where Jane is trying to see if like they're in love or not. And, um, they play charades at one point, like it's kind of a large section. And I, It can go on a little long in the book, but I do think the function of it is interesting because it's not until Mr. Rochester leaves to go visit Blanche Ingram that Jane realizes that she loves him. Yeah. Because I think she'd been kind of denying that in herself. And then we find out later that Mr. Rochester orchestrated this whole scheme to have them come to show Jane that she was to make Jane jealous, basically, because <laughs> yeah. I think he thought she wouldn't admit her feelings unless she was pushed. Right. Yeah. And in some ways he's right, because she does admit it to herself after Blanche is in the picture. But also it's like super fucked up. That oh, he it's does so this. fucked up. The movie never explains why they're there. That's a really good. Yeah. You would just assume that, like, he changed his mind yeah. instead of this being his whole plan. Well, it makes sense, too, because he's kind of ignoring Jane the whole night. And then when she goes to leave, he, like, follows her out. To see her reaction. You're going. You didn't talk to me all night. And it's like, (laughs) what are you talking about? Yeah. And he's like, you look depressed. Like, he's he's just fucking with her so much. (laughs) And it's super messed up. It really is. It is. It's genuinely bad. Um, But, yeah, this this kind of episode in the book functions to kind of reveal where Jane's at and to show kind of what Mr. Rochester is feeling, too, as we find out later. Okay, Adina, we have to talk here about... (laughs) Your favorite part? My favorite part, I think. (laughs) This scene was omitted from the film, probably from every adaptation of this movie, because I don't know how you would actually do it in the film. But essentially, Mr. Rochester leaves on business for one day, right? And while he's gone, the party's kind of continuing, right? Everyone's still at the house. And then a servant comes in and explains that a uh, like a wandering fortune teller, like a kind of a poor woman, but like mysterious and creepy, has shown up to the house and wants to read the fortunes of all the young women in the house. <laughs> and clearly this is kind of like, uh, you know, she's trying to get money and, you know. Draw up business. Yeah, essentially. And everyone in the party is actually like, "Ooh, this is interesting. Like, well, let's do it. Like, what? Well, let's just do it, you know? And so they have. They didn't have a lot going on. Though. No, they were all very bored. So they have the fortune teller like in the library and all the women are going one by one. Or I guess a few of them go at the same time to like speak to this fortune teller. Right. And then Jane isn't going to do it. But the servant is like, oh, she insists that there's one more young lady here. Right. Yeah. And Jane is like, all right. Kind of implying that like maybe there is something almost like a little supernatural going on. Although Jane, when she does talk to the fortune teller, is like, I assume you're talking to the servants and like getting information, right? That <laughs> she, you know people. She's very skeptical. Yes, she does not believe, but she's like into it, right? She's like, this is kind of fun, right? It's a mood. It's a mood. <laughs> and this scene is so um visual, right? Like I loved how it was described. Like it's the library only lit by the fireplace. The fortune teller is sitting by the fire and they have this hat kind of wrapping around their face. So their face is in shadow, right? You Mm -hmm. can't see the fortune teller's face at all. 
except for maybe like the chin a little bit. And there's kind of this whole scene where the fortune teller is going to read Jane's palm. And she says, no, no, no. Like it's actually the face where you see the future, right? Which ties into the uh, physiognomy, which is very prominent in this book. But the idea that like your face reveals like aspects of you and like your character So I love this. Jane is kneeling by the fire while like the fortune teller examines her face and is kind of like mumbling about it. And it's so like creepy. It's so creepy and it's atmospheric. And there's kind of a back and forth like challenging between Jane where she's kind of like, I don't believe you, but she's also like maybe. Mm -hmm. And then it's revealed when she she recognizes a ring on the fortune teller's hand that it is not an old woman, (laughs) but in fact, Mr. Rochester in disguise. (laughs) Mr. Rochester, to fuck with everyone, <laughs> left on business, right? And then came back dressed as a woman and is like, I'm going to tell your fortunes. And then had everyone come in one by one, fucked with them, telling them details about their life that like, how would this woman know this? Yeah. And then like tells them like things to make them feel like sad or happy just to mess with them. Brings Jane in is trying to be like, you love someone, don't you? Yeah. Is it the master? And like tries to like get her to admit yes. how she feels for him to a stranger. <laughs> and Jane's like, what is going on? I am so confused. I, I like, I just love, this is the chaotic energy <laughs> that I want from Mr. Rochester. He's so chaotic. He's so, but like as, as wild as this seems, like it was even kind of established Earlier during the party, they had a game of charades, yeah. right? Where it, it's not kind of how we think of charades now. It's a little bit more, uh, there's more pageantry involved. And it was kind of established that Mr. Rochester was into it. Like, he <laughs> liked putting on the outfits and, like, acting and kind of getting into character almost. So that almost pre-established to him dressing up as a fortune teller, right? And, like, doing a voice and just, like, being crazy. Yeah, and messing and, with people. Yeah, and just messing with people and... I don't know. Then you look back on the conversation and you realize that it's like this kind of battle of wits between Jane and Mr. Rochester, even though she doesn't know it's him at first. Mm-hmm. Right. So I just love the atmosphere of the scene. I love how crazy Mr. Rochester is. <laughs> I love how absurd it is. Like if people don't like this scene, I get it. Yeah. Like if you think it's too far, I totally understand. Okay. <laughs> but something about it worked for me and I loved it. I'll never forget when you like came to me and you were like, oh my God. <laughs> Mr. Rochester dressed up as a fortune teller. Because I think I talked to you before that reveal where I'm like, oh, there's this great scene I'm reading with like the fortune teller. (laughs) (laughs) Honestly, though, like one of my favorite scenes in the book. So good. I loved it. But also, like I said, I don't know if you could do it in In the film without it just being ridiculous. Yeah. But I loved it. (laughs) Uh, Mr. Mason shows up, though, and this seems to rattle Mr. Rochester. When he hears about it, he's, like, freaked out, and Jane has no idea why. And things seem normal until that night there's this scream, right? And Mr. Rochester gets everyone to bed, but Jane stays awake, and he knocks on her door, and he's like, I need your help. And he takes her up to a third-floor bedroom. Where Grace is. Where Grace is, and... Mr. Mason is like sprawled out on a sofa with a stab wound and bite marks on him. And (laughs) he's like rambling. He's like, oh, my God. She said she would suck all my blood out of my body. And (laughs) and Jane is like, what the fuck is happening? Mr. Rochester's like, listen, Jane, I need you to like 
kind of staunch the bleeding on him. I'm going to go get a doctor. Mason, don't say a fucking word to you or I will murder you. I will you. kill you. <laughs> he is so mean to Mr. Mason. And it's so funny. <laughs> like at one point he gives him like a tonic and he's like, here, maybe it'll give you the heart that you lack. <laughs> he's just so mean to him. This scene is super atmospheric in the movie. Because Jane is also hearing, like, these creepy noises behind this tapestry. Yeah. Implying there's, like, a secret room back there. Yeah. So Jane, to her word, stays with Mr. Mason for, like, hours, like, sponging the bleeding from his wound until Rochester comes back with a doctor. And the doctor's like, I mean, he's lost a lot of blood. And Rochester's like, yeah, but he's fine, right? He can go. He can leave, Let's right? get him out of here. We gotta get him out before <laughs> everyone else wakes up. Come on. And so they... <laughs> basically just push him into a carriage and like send him off yeah and jane is like why do you have this servant what is happening bites and stabs people and mr rochester's like i'll i'll explain it to you one day like i i i i'll handle it yes i mean this leans into the whole like grace being like this creepy presence right and jane being like unnerved by her in the book but, like, there's none of this in the film. No. It's just, this just kind of happens with no explanation. No. And, like, I, I don't I, I don't know what I would think not knowing the twist. Yeah. You know, like, would I, would this immediately tip me off that, like, oh, someone's in there, right, that we haven't seen yet, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know. I just feel like the book does a good job of, like, setting up Grace as, like, this um, red yeah. herring. I like that she's very normal looking, right? And, yes. in fact, Jane kind of thinks about, like, why would Mr. Rochester be afraid to fire her? Like, is she a relative of his in some way? Was she, like, an old mistress of his? But then she looks at Grace, and she's this very, like, solidly built, kind of, like, (laughs) red-faced, middle-aged woman. And she's like, nah. (laughs) (laughs) I don't see it. Yeah. I mean, it is just so funny that, like, Grace just kind of, like, walks around and does her job and, like, seems very plain. And then... Oh, but she lit Mr. Rochester's bed on fire. Also, she stabbed and bit this man and threatened to, like, drain the blood out of his heart. Yeah. That, like, a normal person. It's very, like, Jekyll and Hyde, right? Yes. That would have this, like, secret evil in them. So it's not long after this that Jane receives word that her aunt, Mrs. Reed, is dying. Yeah. And that she should go visit her because Mrs. Reed is asking for her. Yeah. So she says goodbye to Mr. Rochester And goes to see her aunt. And this is really interesting for her to go back, right? I loved this. Because she said, like, I'll never call you aunt again, right? I'll hate you for the rest of my life. And Jane kind of reflects now as an adult and is like, you know what? Like, I've let it go, right? Yeah. I think it's great because, like, it's not so much that Jane, like, has excused the behavior. Like, I think she still has the sense of justice that she had before. But it's just been tempered by, like... I don't know, just, like, it's not worth it, right? Like, yeah. Like, just a better context of, like, what it's worth fighting over or being upset about, right? Yeah, and her um, cousin, John, who used to bully her, like, brought the family into ruin, wasted all their money, uh, and then killed himself. And <laughs> yeah. so her aunt had a stroke as a result. And she goes to talk to her aunt, and her aunt is like, oh, you were always a troublesome child and, like, I hated you. So, like, her aunt is dying. Yes. And she's still like, oh, you were the worst. Yeah, you were expecting some kind of, like, 
Reconciliation. Uh, yes, yeah, some kind of apology or acknowledgement of what she had done, but she's still being like such a bitch. Yeah, and, and for her to talk about a child this yeah. way and just say, oh, she was like evil, I hated her, like my husband loved her and that made me hate her more. And she admits to Jane that she had another uncle on her uh, mother's side who was looking for her, or I think it was on her father's side, actually, who was looking for her and wanted to adopt her. And Mrs. Reed told him that Jane died. And she was like, I wanted my revenge on you after you told me off that one time. And I got it. I told him that you were dead. And she was like, I know what I did wasn't right, but also I wouldn't have done it if you didn't suck so much as a child. So like, it's still your fault, basically. (laughs) I know. And she's like, obviously wanting to get this off her chest on her deathbed, right? But she's not saying sorry either. And so I'm like, what are you doing? She's just like, I've said what I've said. Like, you know what I did. And like, now God will judge me. Like, whatever. And Jane is very much like, listen, I forgive you. I don't care anymore. You can be at peace. But also, like, I don't care about you. Like, not saying that, but she's very, like, cold about it. Yeah. And uh, Mrs. Reed dies. Yeah. I just say, like, look, I love Sally Hawkins as an actress. I don't think this was her best work. I don't think this was fit for her. (laughs) No, she feels really miscast. I mean, like, and maybe it's just because we've seen her in the Paddington movies. I know, we have a soft spot for her. Yes, we do. But, like, I don't know. She just doesn't, even, like, the whole, like, dying thing. She's just kind of on, like, a lounge chair and is like, ugh. Like, I'm dying. I I just, I don't know. I just didn't buy, like, any of it. Yeah. And I also think, like, and this is true for the movie in a lot of ways, there just wasn't enough of her to to begin with that, like, this kind of falls flat a little bit. Oh, yeah. You know? It was the same thing with Helen. Like, when Helen died at the school, I'm like, we had one scene with her. Yeah. I don't feel anything for this, right? It's just tough when you have such a limited amount of time. Yeah. I just don't know if you can do this story in a way that makes sense without like making it longer, making it into like a mini series. I think it almost has to be a mini series. If you want to be like very true to the book, like or just get the idea of the story. Right. Yes. You know, you would have to take like a machete to the plot of this movie to hack it down into something that like, both has the emotional impact and like general vibes of the book. Uh, and fits within the time frame of a movie. Yeah. Just try to, like, consolidate, like, all those main plot points into, like, one, like, two-hour film is a huge feat that I don't know if there's a way to, like, do it effectively. Yeah, I agree. So Jane makes her way back to Mr. Rochester. And it's kind of implied by Mrs. Fairfax. She's like, oh, the, the group all left. You know, Blanche Ingram isn't here anymore. But it's it's pretty obvious that Mr. Rochester is planning to get married. Like, he's sent for his jewels. He's making plans to travel again. Uh, he's going to marry Blanche Ingram. Yeah. Right? And so Jane is like, oh, my God, I'm going to have to find a new job. Right? Because in this type of situation, she knows that Blanche would send Adele to school. And so she wouldn't be needed. She's the classic evil stepmom who's like, <laughs> I'm sending you to boarding school. Very parent trap. Very parent trap. <laughs> And Jane is also like, so, yeah, also, I don't want to be around anymore, so I'm going to figure something out. Yeah, it's really hard for her, though, because she realizes that she's going to have to be parted from Mr. Rochester, who she knows that she loves now. And they have a couple conversations, the most dramatic, of course, being their conversation 
uh, in the orchard near this huge chestnut tree where they're kind of finally confronting each other over this because in the book, Mr. Rochester is sort of implied to her, yes, I'm getting married. Yes, you'll have to go. Maybe I'll send you like to Ireland or something. Right. (laughs) He's like, I've made arrangements like there's there's room in Ireland for you. And she's like, really? (laughs) Ireland? Again, he's he's fucking with her. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what it is. I don't want to make any excuses for Mr. Rochester or give him like any credit where he doesn't deserve it. But for some reason, like, I don't mind his bullshit as much as I feel like I should. Like, I feel like I should be outraged by how much he fucks with Jane and other people in general. But there's something about, like, the chaotic energy of it, at least in the book, where I'm like, something about this is, like, still kind of, like, entertaining. Yeah, and he's trying to bait Jane. Yes. He's literally just trying to get Jane to admit how she feels. And eventually he does succeed because... She is overcome with the idea that she's going to be separated from him, not just separated by distance, but but with him getting married. Right. And so we have this great scene and we have him baiting Jane and baiting Jane. And finally she erupts. And I I just have to read it again because uh, it's just a great scene. So I tell you, I must go. I retorted roused to something like passion. Do you think I can stay to become nothing to you? Do you think I am an automaton? a machine without feelings, and can bear to have my morsel of bread snatched from my lips and my drop of living water dashed from my cup? Do you think, because I am poor, obscure, plain and little, I am soulless and heartless? You think wrong. I have as much soul as you, and full as much heart. And if God had gifted me with some beauty and much wealth, I should have made it as hard for you to leave me as it is now hard for me to leave you. I am not talking to you now through the medium of custom, conventionalities, or even of mortal flesh. It is my spirit that addresses your spirit, just as if both had passed through the grave and we stood at God's feet, equal as we are. Great speech. And this is where Mr. Rochester responds by saying, as we are, Jane, equal, and starts kissing her, right? And she's like, what's happening? (laughs) (laughs) Wait a minute. Are you fucking with me? But again, I think this speech is actually... Even though very different, it's very similar to the one she gave to Mrs. Reed, right? Because she's saying, do you think that I have no feelings Yeah, and you can treat me this way? Like, I am a human being. And for her to stand up for herself in this way, even though it's totally different situations. Yeah. um, I just love it so much because she's saying, like, even though I am nothing in the eyes of society and class and even in gender, right? In gender, they're not equal. She's saying, no, here I am talking to you as a human being, as a person, our souls communicating with each other, and I have a right to say my piece. Yeah, it's so good. And, you know, I will say, like, in the movie, I think this scene plays off really well, too. Yes. I will say, though, that, like, I think Jane's character in the film up until this point has lacked a lot. Mm -hmm. And I've read a lot of people really praising Mia Wasikowska in this role. And I'm not I'm not saying like it's any failing on her part. Like, I think it's as much of the script and the directing. It didn't work for me, though, for a lot of it. I think she feels very timid in a lot of moments. Right. Like, to me, the character of Jane can be quiet a lot. 
But it's because she doesn't feel the need to talk, right? Yeah. When she does talk. She's funny. Yes. She's witty. She's, yeah, she's, she's interesting. strong. But, like, in the film, it feels almost like she's timid and afraid to talk most of the time, right? Yeah. Like, she feels, I don't know, like, kind of scared or something. Like, I felt that way a lot in the party. And, like, and she is in points in the book, like, overcome with emotion where she's crying over things, right? She's not, like, cold or heartless or anything. But, like, I don't know. She just feels, she doesn't feel like the strong character of the book. Yeah. And I don't know how much of that is just, like, in the book you have her perspective directly, Mm -hmm. and that fills in a lot of the gaps, right? But I think she needed to be, like, a little bit more strong and commanding as a presence in the film. Yeah, I agree with you. This scene is good, and I think it comes out um, here really well. Yes. But in other parts, yeah, it's, it's a little bit less so, and you don't feel like they're really kind of sparring as much no. together. Like, I think that early scene when he's talking about, like, oh, are you a witch or something? And they're kind of, like, bantering a little bit. Like, that's kind of the only part I can think of where they are really connecting on an intellectual level. Yeah. And then the rest of the time, you're like, okay, but what does he what does he see in her? Because he's, like, really into her, right? Mm-hmm. Or she's into him. But I don't think there's enough of that, like, emotional, intellectual connection throughout the film. Yeah, I agree. Uh, He does propose to her, though, uh, in this scene, reveals, uh, no, I just had the whole Blanche Ingram thing to make you jealous, and (laughs) I love you, and I've loved you this whole time. I don't care about our class differences. Like, you're my equal, Jane. You, You are my other half. Like, we are connected in some way, and I want to be with you. And she's obviously shocked, but is happy and wants to be with him, and They end up kissing under this tree and then going inside because there's a storm. And then very ominously, the next morning when they wake up, they see that lightning struck that tree and like split it in half. I love this. (laughs) I love this as a detail and like the imagery of it, right? Yeah. Uh, Because she even describes like the two halves, both dead are like clinging to each other still, like supporting each other kind of. Yeah. Just great visuals. Very good imagery. They have to explain themselves to Mrs. Fairfax because she sees them kissing and is, like, obviously afraid for Jane. Yeah. Right? And even when Mrs. Fairfax hears the truth, she's still like, be really cautious, Jane. Right? Like, this is a delicate situation where you're marrying your employer. I love this so much because Mrs. Fairfax up until this point has kind of been depicted as, like, a little bit of a simpleton. Right? Yeah. Like, not quite on the intellectual level of Jane or Mr. Rochester. But here she's like very wise and is like, listen, be cautious and take things slow. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, she's afraid of Jane's virtue. Right. Yes. And that Mr. Rochester might not be serious about marrying her. Uh, he's leading her on potentially. Um, and so Jane has kind of an interesting pre-wedding dynamic with Mr. <laughs> Rochester where she just uh, tries to repulse his affection the whole time, yes. which only makes him more horny. It's very <laughs> it's very kinky, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is kinky. Like this power dynamic between them where yeah. he's like trying to like woo her and like, you know, give her all these things. And she's like, nope. And then she's like, mm, not interested. And he's like, oh, you vex me. Like, <laughs> I'll make you pay for this later. <laughs> Right? It's and like, you're like, ah. Uh. It's like a month of foreplay before the wedding, right? Yeah. But I think it's really interesting because, like, obviously the power dynamic between them is, like, crucial to, like, the story and their dynamic in general, right? That he's 
her employer, mm-hmm. but like they're getting married now and like things aren't equal between them yet. Yeah, I think this is a really good time to talk about the sexual dynamics here. Yeah. Because Jane always calls him her master. <laughs> yeah. And when she speaks to him, she calls him sir. And I mean, you immediately think of like BDSM and like dom and sub dynamics, right? In sex. Yeah. And like, Part of me wonders, and I did research this a little bit, but it's really hard to know, like, where certain fantasies and kinks come from, right? Did this exist back then? Yeah. And if it did, like, maybe it did, but it wasn't officially called, like, a dom-sub dynamic. Yeah, like, there probably wasn't a name to it, right? But people probably still had this, right? Yeah. They had this fantasy, right, of someone being in power over you, but you in power over them. And I just want to read this one part. I know I've been reading a lot, but this... This book is so good. If there is a book to read a lot from, (laughs) it's this one. So Mr. Rochester's talking to Jane about their dynamic. And he said, I never met your likeness, Jane. You please me and you master me. You seem to submit. And I like the sense of pliancy you impart. And while I am twining the soft silken skein round my finger, it sends a thrill up my arm to my heart. I am influenced, conquered. And the influence is sweeter than I can express. And the conquest I undergo has a witchery beyond any triumph I can win. Why do you smile, Jane? What does that inexplicable, that uncanny turn of countenance mean? I was thinking, sir, you will excuse the idea. It was involuntary. I was thinking of Hercules and Samson with their charmers. So kind of this, like, he talks about her submitting. Yeah. But also mastering him at the same time. And I think this is fascinating because Jane, in a lot of ways, is a sub, Right? Yeah. She likes to be told what to do. She likes to kind of be ordered around and be allowed to obey. In fact, later on in the story, she talks about other characters kind of dominating her and like her kind of enjoying that. Yeah. And at least like she feels like she's fulfilling a function or a role. Yes. Right? But at the same time, she has her own like passion and will, right? And so with Mr. Rochester, I think they're able to like dom and sub each other in very interesting ways. Yeah, where she is able to also like withhold what gratifies him, Mm -hmm. right? Like when she wants to. And I think you really get that sense of that dynamic here. Yeah, I mean, it's super horny, It is so horny. (laughs) It's like really horny. And I also want to mention that uh, Charlotte Bronte has like a little bit of an interesting history Ooh. where she ended up going with her sister Emily to Brussels and they went to this school where they were going to learn like German and some other languages because they wanted to eventually open their own school, which never happened. Um, but they were teaching there and also like learning at the same time. And uh, Charlotte kind of ended up having this interesting relationship with the headmaster at this school. <laughs> Because there was, like, a girls' school and a boys' school, I think. Um, But he was married. Oh, my God. Yeah. And she called him her master. And they had this really kind of interesting dynamic. And the wife got jealous. And kind of, like, Charlotte ended up leaving, I think, of her own volition because of the situation. Like, kind of deciding, like, I can't do this anymore because he's married and I can't be with him. But she wrote him like a lot of letters and she calls him her master a lot wow, in her letters. And he like didn't really write her back that much. Yeah. And so you don't really know what their relationship was, but it's obvious that she 
really liked him. Yeah. And wanted to be with him. I'm guessing this was pre-writing Jane Eyre. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yeah. And in fact, in all her other books, not all of them, uh, in The Professor and in Valette, there's this professor character Mm. that the main character kind of has this dynamic with. That's so fascinating. Yeah. And this really touches on something, too, that I loved about the book, which was just the general pacing, because here we have a part where, okay, they've confessed their love to each other, right? And now we're going to get married in a month, right? Okay, what's happening between that month, right? And it's so interesting, right? There's also the dynamic of, like, Rochester's, like, talking about, like, I'm going to buy you all the best things. I can't wait to buy you everything, right? Like, it's going to be great. Like, he's manic. He's crazy. And she's like, calm (laughs) down. (laughs) Pump the brakes. Like, you love me for me. If you put all this shit on me, I'm not going to be me. And I'm going to be miserable. And then you'll be miserable. Like, don't do it. And, like, he almost can't help himself. Mm -hmm. So, like, that's interesting Obviously, the kind of dom-sub dynamic going on is also fascinating. It's just like, it feels like every portion of this book introduces or examines an interesting dynamic of either Jane or her relationships or something, right? Yeah. There's very few parts that feel like... Purposeless. Yes, exactly. Like, maybe a couple that I feel like could be condensed a little bit. But for the most part, every aspect of this story feels like it's examining something. Mm -hmm. And I love that. Yeah, I do too. And then we also get like another spooky part here where Jane is telling Mr. Rochester while he's been away about these creepy dreams she had of like the house being destroyed and something walking in a wood alone. And then when she wakes up from her dream, there's a woman in her room. And she's like, I have never seen this woman before in my life. And she had, like, kind of, like, a, a a bruised, darkened face. Yeah. And red eyes and, like, long, tangled hair. And she stood over me. And then she went over to my veil my at my wedding dress. And she put it on and looked at herself in the mirror and then tore it in half. And, and then, then I passed out. I passed out. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Rochester's like, oh, that sounds like such a scary dream. Like, yeah. that's terrible. And you she's obviously like, imagined it. And she's like, I woke up and my veil was torn in half. And he's like, oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> this part was so creepy. So creepy. And I cannot believe they didn't include this. I know. It's the scariest part. And I mean, but that kind of like. The book doesn't feel, or I'm sorry, the film doesn't feel as, like, gothic and creepy. No. As more romantic the, than Yes, gothic. it's leaning more into the romanticism. Like, yeah, you have, like, the the kind of landscapes that feel appropriate to the story and things like that. And, like, there's, like, some, some creepiness, but overall it feels more like the romance is at the lead. Yeah. But, like, this part is terrifying. Oh, my God. And it's so good. Also, this hit home for me, Adina, because <laughs> I one time... <laughs> Had someone in my room in college. Oh, my God. I woke up to someone standing in my doorway. And look, I think it was probably someone drunk that wandered into our apartment and, like, just didn't want to say anything and left. But I woke up to the silhouette of someone standing in my doorway. And it was so funny because this was exactly like in Jane Eyre. Yeah. Because in Jane Eyre, she sees this figure and she's like... Sophie? Sophie? Is that you? Sophie? And she's like, I knew it wasn't Sophie. Yes. I did the same thing where I could tell this person wasn't my roommate, Jared, but I was still like, Jared? Jared? (laughs) 
God. And then they just walked away. They shut the door. And I was like, <gasps> and I just like laid in bed for like 10 minutes until oh I got God. up. Oh my God. It was one of the most terrifying thing that's ever happened to me. So you can me. sympathize with Jane just passing out, yeah. right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> exactly. Uh, uh, I just laughed how her, her reaction was my exact reaction in almost that exact circumstance. <laughs> It's so scary, and he continues to gaslight her, and it's like it's fine. It was just Grace, and it, and you were you were, had just woken up from your dream, which is why she looked different. I'll take care of Grace. Don't worry. She's like you've been saying you'll take care of Grace for forever, but she seems okay with that explanation, though. Yeah, she's like, oh, okay, and I'll go back to bed. And I'm like, who cares if it's Grace or not? Like. She was in your room. Like, yeah. how is that like an explanation? Like, oh, that's just Grace. You know her. She goes into people's rooms, puts their clothing on, and then just stands Rips over Rips it them. to shreds. <laughs> but the wedding does happen, right? We get to the wedding day, and Jane feels nervous about it. And I think rightly so, because they get to the church. They're going to go through with the wedding, and it's almost immediately stopped. Yes. Uh, someone does the classic, stop the wedding. I have something to say. And this is where just everything hits the fan, yeah. right? Mr. Mason is revealed. He's there with his lawyer. And he's like, you're married to my sister. And you married her in Jamaica like 15 years ago. And she's now in your house. And even the minister is like, no, she's not. Like, <laughs> yeah, he doesn't like, have a wife. Wait, what? But it's coming out. And then finally, Mr. Rochester, after like trying to throttle Mr. Mason, <laughs> is like, all right, let's go see my wife. Yes. It's like, everybody come with me. Everyone meet Mrs. Rochester. And he takes them to the hidden room. And there we see Grace Poole. But as like being a, a servant or a helper to his wife, the crazy lady, the crazy woman. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I mean, she is just in terrible condition. I mean, she's just like incapable of having a conversation. Right. She's like, obviously, they didn't have like a diagnosis. Right. Yeah. They talk about her in very animalistic terms. Yes. Right. She's described as savage, as a leopard, like as just being vicious. Right. And crazy. And she kind of attacks Mr. Rochester at one point and is screaming. And, you know, it's just the classic, like very um, just not great representation of someone experiencing some kind of mental illness. And we do have later Mr. Rochester kind of explaining to Jane the circumstances of his marriage to Bertha Rochester in that his father and older brother um, wanted him to inherit money. And so they set up this marriage and kind of sent him to Jamaica. And he met this woman and she was very beautiful. And they, But he was kind of rushed into it and he didn't get to spend a lot of time with her. And then after they were married, he realized that she was kind of like um, coarse and rough and like implied that she had affairs with other men and was just kind of like not a good and godly person, right? And then the mental illness kicked in. Yes. And he was like, you know, it's not her condition that makes me dislike her. She wasn't a good person in like in my marriage, like before any of this happened, right? Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like this conflict. And we kind of were saying like, it's all very convenient, right? Yes. Like, oh, it's not that she 
uh, is mentally disturbed that he doesn't love her. It's that she wasn't a good person before this happened. And like kind of implying that she deserves the craziness because she was immoral. Yeah. You know, there's some weird kind of like implications, too, about her ancestry. Like she's Creole. She's in, you know, the Caribbean. Right. I don't know if there's really any kind of hint that she might have any African ancestry, if that's like hinted at here, or if it's just that there's some prejudice against people who live in like tropical climates. Yeah. But, you know, many scholars and um, people doing critical analysis of this book have pointed out the misogyny in this character, right? And I mean, maybe it's a little bit of wish fulfillment on Charlotte Bronte's part, right? Like the man she loved was married, but like she was evil and crazy, right? And like if only she didn't exist and they could be together. Um, There is a book called Wide Sargasso Sea that is written from Mrs. Rochester's perspective. Uh, I recently read it and I actually hated it. So I don't know if I would recommend it. I felt like that book was actually really like racist and uncomfortable, Um, But I do agree with the general idea that, like, Mrs. Rochester is painted as this villain when really she's a victim, right? Absolutely. I mean, it's kind of a, it's a tough situation because, like, obviously the understanding of mental health at that point and the ability to, like, help anybody going through something like that was, like, limited if, like, non-existent. And Mr. Rochester implies, like, I mean... Yeah, I locked her up in my attic, but, like, the other option was, like, a madhouse, which are terrible also. Like, there's almost, like, no good solutions to this situation. Mm -hmm. And you do see, like, his situation of, you know, yeah, he tried to marry another woman, right, (laughs) while he was still married. But he's like, I'm not married, though. That's not my wife. That is just someone... That I, like, basically have to take care of. I can't legally divorce her. No. We're just in a real, like, this isn't a relationship anymore. Like, I don't get anything out of this quote-unquote marriage, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I still need companionship. And so you do sympathize with him to that degree, right? Uh, But I think ultimately, like we were saying, the whole situation is very convenient as Mm -hmm. far as, like, yes, Mr. Rochester tried to do, like, a... I mean, the worst thing he did was just not tell Jane any of this. Yeah. Like, that was by far the worst thing in, like, kind of manipulating (laughs) her into this position, right? Uh, But ultimately, it tries to justify his actions as much as possible. For sure. But they end up in this argument where Jane is like, I have to go. I can't live here anymore. And Mr. Rochester's like, listen, this is what we'll do. There's so, I have a house in the south of France. We'll go there. We'll say that we're married. And we will be. Like, I will marry you. I will make any vow you want. Like, I will be faithful to you. And Jane's like, you can't. You're married. And he's like, I'm not, though. And I can't do this. And I can't lose you. Like, it doesn't matter to me that it won't be, like, actually legal. Like, it's just this little law. And, like, it's not a big deal. Just agree to this, Jane. Just do this so we can be together. And Jane is very much, like, tempted in this situation and wanting to be with him but there this is just a line that she's unwilling to cross and I really like this aspect to her character I don't necessarily agree with the rationale right like sex before marriage that whole idea right and like he's married whatever um but for Jane this is a personal boundary right yes and she's literally like I don't care this is something that I can't live with myself if I do. Yes. And so she's refusing to give in to him. And it's like a storm 
between them, right? He's begging her. He's crying. At one point, he's shaking her, right? Like he's threatening to hurt her potentially, but she won't move, right? And she won't give in to his pleas. And it's just very, very emotional. It's very dramatic and sad. And you feel Jane's conflict, right? And she's like, I. she knows that if she went with him, there would be a lot of joy, but there'd also be a lot of like misery and regret and like... She wouldn't be able to actually enjoy their marriage for what it is. And be with him the way she wants. Yes. So she ultimately in this like huge long conversation decides like I can't do this. And she has decided to leave. And she actually the next morning or in the middle of the night, I forget, uh, flees. Yeah. Sneaks out. Sneaks out and uh, goes to like the nearest road, finds someone who will give her a ride. She literally can't take anything with her. She like leaves basically all of her possessions. She has like a little bit of money and she spends all of that money <laughs> to get away. Yeah. Which I argue was maybe not the best decision <laughs> to spend all your money to get somewhere. Where like really far. Yes. Yeah. Uh, But this is actually where the movie begins. You know, the movie begins with her fleeing. Right. Mm-hmm. And then. Uh, there's this portion of time where she is there. It's like three days where she basically she knows I have to beg for food or money. Like, I don't know anybody. Like, there's yeah. no one I can go to. I need food or money. But she just has so much trouble, like, doing that. Right. And mm-hmm. people are, like, very suspicious. suspicious of her. Yeah. They're like, mm, I don't know about you. Yeah. We get some really beautiful shots here in the movie. The scenery, her on the moors, like this storm rolling in. Oh, that one with the storm in the distance. Gorgeous. Right. Um, But it's very atmospheric and it really impresses you the severity of her situation. Right. She's starving. She's soaked with rain. She has nowhere to go. Eventually, she finds her way to this house begs to be let in. In the book, she's turned away by the housekeeper. Yeah. And then she's literally like, I'm going to die on this doorstep. I'm just going to lay right here and die, <laughs> if and, you don't mind. And then the um, the church minister comes by. Uh, his name's uh, Sinjin Rivers and lets her into the house. And this is where she kind of collapses. She goes through this period of like recovering and is eventually like, Please let me stay with you. I need to get a job. If you can help me find a job, that would be great. I can't really tell you, like, where I come from. Yes. And so it's Sinjin, which, by the way, is spelled like St. John, but I found out is pronounced Sinjin. (laughs) And then he has two sisters, uh, Diana and Mary. Mm -hmm. And Jane really connects with Diana and Mary. Like, they're both very well-read and intellectual, and she has this, like, real bond with them where they just enjoy each other's company. Yeah. Sinjin is more, like, guarded and quiet and kind of reserved, and she's, like, there's something there that's, like, hard to, like, break through. But he does help her a lot, and he ends up setting her up with a house, like a little cottage, and a school that he had been wanting to set up anyway, a, a school for young girls, and asks if Jane would teach it. Yeah. And it's like a very lowly, kind of humbling position. She'll make almost no money, but she'll have shelter and, like, be able to get by. And Jane is like, I'll do it. Yeah. Like, I'll do anything. Yeah. And let's talk about Sinjin a little bit, because Diana and Mary, they they have to go off and be governesses because they're a poor family. And Sinjin is, like, the local minister. But he wants to be a missionary. Yeah. And Jane describes him as, like, 
classically handsome, right? This Grecian profile, right? And he has this ambition and drive, right? He has to be great. He has to do something amazing. Like just existing in this village and being the pastor is not enough for him, right? He needs to go out and do something really crazy. He definitely can't sit still. Like, he can't relax, right? No. Like, a, a, a child at one point showed up in the middle of the night and was like, my mom is really sick, can you come and see her? And it's, like, raining, and it's, like, four miles away. And Sinjin's like, all right. And the sisters are like, just say you'll go tomorrow, it's fine. And he's like, nope, and he, like, leaves. <laughs> and they say when he comes back, he looks happier, right? Mm -hmm. Like, he just has to be moving and doing something, right? Yeah, and there's this local um, young lady who's in love with him. And you can tell that he likes her, too. Uh, Miss Oliver, but he refuses to entertain her love and basically ends up telling Jean about it when she asks him and says, like, yes, I'm into her, but um, I'm going to be a missionary and she wouldn't be a good missionary's wife. So I've kind of set this as like my personal challenge to like defeat my feelings for her and kind of looks at it as like an achievement to like master his sexual and romantic desires. He has this purpose in his mind of being a missionary, this purpose from God, right? And everything in his life has to serve that function. Yeah. So, like, he can't have a marriage if that marriage would at all hinder his, like, ultimate goal, right? Mm -hmm. Around this time, we get the the news. <laughs> well, like, it's like a multi-step reveal information dump. Where essentially, up until this point, Jane has been going by Jane Elliot to hide her identity. I don't know exactly how far she was from Thornfield, but she felt it necessary to, like, to protect herself, to give herself uh, an alias. But Sinjin discovers that her actual name is Jane Eyre because he also found out that her uncle passed away. The uncle that she found out about from her aunt mm -hmm. when she died. Yeah. And this uncle wanted to give all of his money to her. And, but like, they were trying to track her down. They're like, we don't know where she is. So they're trying to find her. Mm -hmm. And the reason Sinjin knows about all of this was because that her uncle that died was also his uncle. Yeah, they're cousins. They're cousins, Surprise baby. cousins. Surprise cousins. <laughs> and I found this really interesting in the book and the movie, this is another thing that doesn't, like, really get into or explain it. They don't say that they're cousins. No. The but then they also do the whole, like, oh, but we're siblings now thing. Yeah. Which was weird. But Jane was, like, she was not unhappy to get the money. She found out she's getting, like, 20,000 pounds, which was, like, a, a fortune, right? Like, that was a ton of money to her. And she was almost, like, immediately stressed about it. <laughs> <laughs> but to find out that she's actually cousins with not only Sinjin, but Diana and Mary. and Mary was, like, great news. Like, that was the thing she was, like, so excited about because now she has family. Now yeah. she has people, right? And she immediately is like, well, we'll split the money between all four of us. And that makes her feel good. It makes her feel like she's helping this family that helped her so much yeah. in her time of need. And then she also feels like it's giving them the ability to have the life they want, right? Because these good friends of hers don't have to be governesses anymore. They can, like, use this money to live on. Sinjin can have this money so he can go to India and be a missionary. And so they split the money and end up kind of all living together in a house. Um, and Sinjin is preparing to go to India. Yes. So as Sinjin is, like, preparing for his trip, he's learning... 
uh, what's the language? Uh, it's Hindustani. It's actually Hindustani, okay. a combination of Hindu and or Hindi and Urdu, which okay. is actually spoken very widely by a lot of people. It's like a an amalgamation of two languages. Okay, interesting. So he's learning this language in preparation for his trip. And then he's like, Jane, can you do me a favor and learn it with me? Because it'll help like having someone to like both teach and kind of like try <laughs> to talk with. And I love Jane agrees to this. And both Diana and Mary are like, we would have never agreed to that. <laughs> like, I don't know what possesses you, but we would have never agreed to learn this. Because Jane was trying to learn German at this point. So yeah. she starts doing these lessons with him, right? And there's kind of this, like, power dynamic that begins to develop between them where basically anything Sinjin asks her to do and she'll do it. And anything he disapproves of, she'll kind of stop doing. Like, yeah. she, she, start, she stops laughing as much. Uh, she becomes a little bit more stoic and serious. Like, she'll do things that, like, Diana and Mary know that she wouldn't want to do, but, like, because Sinjin asks, she'll do it. Mm -hmm. And so this, like, weird, interesting relationship starts to form. Yeah, this seems like a twisted version of the Dom sub-dynamic between her and Mr. Rochester. Yeah. Where with her and Mr. Rochester, it was like a give and take. It was a push and pull, right? Yes. He would dominate her, but she would also kind of dominate him in a way, right? But in this version, it's just him dominating her and her like repressing herself more yes. and more. Yeah. It's really sad. Then we get what we all knew was coming. The proposal. The marathon proposal. The marathon. The multi-day event, <laughs> Dina, of Sinjin proposing to her. In the movie, it's just one scene, it's right? one very But in scene. the book, he proposes like four times to or, her? Or like over the course of four days. Yeah. Like to keep bringing it back up. It keeps happening. And it's so interesting because his pitch is this, essentially. Like, listen, I want you to come with me to India on this missionary trip with me as my wife. Yeah. And Jane is like, ooh, like, you know, I would go with you as, like, your sister, right? Because they kind of have that, they've been calling each other, like, their brother sibling, and brother and sister. So it's now weird that he's like, why don't you marry me? Uh, but she was like, I would go as your sister. And he's like, I could not go there with you as my sister, because we're not siblings. And like most people know that. And that's improper. And that's improper. So you would have to be my wife. Right. And you said you would go. <laughs> and this is the only way to do it. And she's just like, I can I can't marry you. Yeah. And you get this feeling that like he doesn't love her and he basically says as much. But like he thinks she would be good at being a missionary. He's like, I've been observing you like you're very smart like, you're very committed. You're submissive and obedient. Yes. You'll do basically anything that I ask you, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you would be very good at this. And so he's really just like, I want to use you as a tool. Yeah, that's what he wants. I don't love you. This is just a way to get you to come with me <laughs> and to use you for God's will. And he's very much, like, applying this pressure to her of, like, God wants this for you. Yeah. Like, this is God calling to you. When you say no to me, you're saying no to God. Yeah. And, like, when she, you know... When she turns him down the first time, he ends up like passive aggressively reading the Bible at her later yeah. and being like, oh, all these people that deny God go to hell and like just treats her so coldly. And I love how his character is revealed in this multi-day proposal, right? Because we see how cold he is and hard hearted, right? He really doesn't believe in love or he doesn't believe in loving Jane. And Jane just feels like what it would feel like to be married to him. And I just want to read uh, a little part here. I looked at his features 
beautiful in their harmony, but strangely formidable in their still severity, at his brow, commanding, but not open, at his eyes, bright and deep and searching, but never soft, at his tall imposing figure and fancied myself in idea, his wife, oh, it would never do, as his curate, his comrade, all would be right, I would cross oceans with him in that capacity, toil under eastern suns in Asian deserts with him in that office, admire and emulate his courage and devotion and vigor, accommodate quietly to his masterhood, smile undisturbed at his ineradicable ambition, discriminate the Christian from the man, proudly esteem the one and freely forgive the other. I should suffer often, no doubt, attached to him only in this capacity. My body would be under rather a stringent yoke, but my heart and mind would be free. I should still have my unblighted self to turn to, my natural unenslaved feelings with which to communicate in moments of loneliness. There would be recesses in my mind, which would be only mine, to which he never came, and sentiments growing there fresh and sheltered, which his austerity could never blight, nor his measured warrior march trample down. But as his wife, at his side always, and always restrained, and always checked, forced to keep the fire of my nature continually low, to compel it to burn inwardly, and never utter a cry, though the imprisoned flame consumed vital after vital, this would be unendurable. Ugh, it's so good. Like, I, I just love the idea that not being his wife, she has this, like, part of herself that still hers. Yeah, same. That she can retreat into and that she can keep secret. But as his wife, and this kind of goes back to, like, she says, if I went on this mission trip, I would do it. Like, I would be fully committed. Like, yeah. I don't, I can't do anything halfway, right? Mm -hmm. And it's similar with marriage. She's like, if I'm your wife, I have to be your wife 100%. I can't do this bullshit of, like, we're getting married out of convenience yeah, for, like, and your you don't mission love me. trip. Yeah. yeah. And so we see this strength coming through once again of, like, her knowing what's right and wrong. Yeah. And I also love seeing... Sinjin is a foil to Rochester here and how similar they are, but also how different. Yeah. Like they've both kind of like manipulated Jane in similar ways. But with Rochester, he was trying to get Jane's true feelings out of her, right? Yeah. Not to excuse how no. much he fucked with her, <laughs> but like he ultimately wanted to know how she felt about him. Like that was his goal to reveal the feelings that were there, right? Whereas Sinjin is trying to tamp down those feelings yeah dominate he, and control her. yes he wants her to be a tool for god in his mission and that's all mm -hmm. right like love isn't in the equation and he's examined her and her skills as how they can serve god whereas rochester i feel like you know when he was looking at her art for example that was a reflection of jane's kind of like inner feelings and her real personality yeah and that's what he found interesting about them sinjin is like how can this be used for god's kingdom <laughs> for my mission yes right yeah and like in many ways mr rochester is portrayed as immoral right and like kind of going against god in what he was trying to do right he was trying to commit bigamy right yeah yeah and commit this sin in marrying jane so he's like he's sinful he had mistresses right he's very worldly but then you know sinjin is a Christian, devout, he's a missionary, right? Yeah. But he's cold. He has no heart inside of him. And so I think this is really interesting in showing that, like, you can have certain vir virtues but be missing others. Yes. Right? Like, just because this person looks and acts like a villain and this person looks and acts like a hero doesn't mean that they are that way. Yeah. Well, and also, like, the way that they've both reacted to rejection, right? Right. Like, on one hand, 
Rochester is like overly he's like volatile in his yeah. emotions. Like he's he'll he'll yell and you know be like overly dramatic, right? Which is not great. But then you see the reverse with Sinjin where he gets cold and polite. And Jane almost credits him at points for like being the master of his emotions. Like, oh, he wants to yell at me, but he's res- like the Christian side of him is restraining that. Yeah. She almost gives him credit for that. Too like, much credit. Too much. But really, I see that as like, if you're mad, just fucking say it, man. Yeah. Like, don't pretend that like you've forgiven me if you haven't, right? Don't pretend like you're fine if you're not. Mm-hmm. And so I love seeing that contrast too. Yeah, but again, this is another moment where Jane is being like pushed, right, and tested. And this is where... She's like, I literally can't do this. Like, it will kill me to marry you. See, she says that to him. Yes. It will kill me to marry you. And it's kill. you're killing me now with how you're treating me. And I love him being like, uh, that's not true. Like, you're, <laughs> can you take that back? Jamie Bell as, uh, or is that his name? Yes, Jamie, Jamie Bell. Bell as, uh, Sinjin is like, I'm killing you. Yeah. Like, he's very mad about it. <laughs> yeah, this is like a small scene in the film, mm-hmm. but it's such a long part of the book. Yeah. Yeah. And then finally, he's pressing his last advantage, asking her to marry him once again. And Jane kind of cries out to God and is like, what should I do? What do I do? And she hears Mr. Rochester calling her. He, she hears Jane, Jane. And she kind of says, where are you? I'm coming. And just like, here's his voice. In, yeah. the, in the movie, she starts like running into the moor. <laughs> she just, whatever. She just takes off. Jane's fight or flight reflex <laughs> when she, there's too much pressure of a man proposing is to just run into the wilderness. Yeah. She's like, I'll find another house with another man until he proposes to me. And then I'll just continue the cycle. Yeah. In the book, she hears it at night inside and then just goes to bed. And then the next day she's like, I got to go find Mr. Rochester. Yeah. (laughs) So she uh, leaves and goes to return to Thornfield. And she discovers that it's burned down. Yeah. Which reflects the one of the dreams that she had. That yeah. Thornfield was like a shell of itself, right? Like mm-hmm. crumbling. Yeah. And she finds out what happened from the innkeeper. And it's like, what happened to Thornfield? In the movie, she's at this wreckage of a house. It's clearly been burned. Like, all of it's been burned. And then suddenly, Mrs. Fairfax is like, oh, Jane, hi. (laughs) (laughs) Like, where did you come from? Oh, yeah, I I live under that timber right now, that burned out. Yeah, that hole. That's where I live. I just crawl. I crawl out of there every morning just to get some sunshine. Like, if they would have showed her there and then maybe had the conversation, like, in a different place where we can see we're at Mrs. Fairfax's like house now That's or whatever. Like, you would imply is nearby or yeah, something. Yeah, different. <laughs> After the conversation, she, she just crawls sc- underneath. <laughs> <laughs> but we get the same amount of information from both Mrs. Fairfax and uh, the innkeeper, which is that crazy Mrs. Rochester, right? She tried to burn down uh, Mr. Rochester's in his bed the one night. She sets the whole house on fire uh, another night. And uh, Mr. Rochester gets everyone out of the house. She's up on the roof. He tries to get her down. She jumps and kills herself. Yeah. But unfortunately, the whole house is destroyed. And also, Mr. Rochester goes blind from it. In the book, he has like an eye that pops right out. <laughs> like he got trapped. <laughs> yeah. Like under like debris? Some, some debris. 
And like literally one of the eyes popped out of his head. Yeah. He also lost a hand. He also lost a hand. And his other eye that is still there got like inflamed and he like can't really see out of it now. In the movie, he's just blind, has both of his eyes and hands. But he but he grew a big beard. Yeah. So you know he's not <laughs> in a good place. That's how we know that he's disturbed. He's very sad now. <laughs> we do get one really nice scene though where when Mrs. Fairfax in the film is like very happy to see Jane. And she says something like, why did you leave in the middle of the night? Like, I could have helped you. Like, yeah. I, I had some money saved up. And she says, like, I didn't know it was his wife. Yes. And kind of saying, like, she would have been on Jane's side and would have done what she could to, like, help Jane get out of this situation without having to, like, literally abandon all her possessions and, like, run in the moors starving <laughs> and alone. Yeah. Uh, this is exclusive to the movie, but I do really like this kind of resolution with Mrs. Fairfax because we don't really get any kind of resolution with no. Mrs. Fairfax in the book. I mean, she wasn't, like, a huge character, but she was, like, a consistent presence and, like, a good person. So yeah. it's nice to, like, have a closure with her. Yes, but Jane is reunited united with Mr. Rochester. She goes to see him. He's blind and she comes up to him. In the book, she kind of like doesn't reveal who she is right away. But they have this moment together and it's so sweet and it's so sad, right? Because he's like, I'm disgusting. I'm like, you wouldn't want to be with me anymore. Like, I've ruined everything. Yeah. Um, But Jane is just kind of coming back and saying, like, no, I still love you and I want to be with you. And it's just so sweet. It's so it's so touching. The the movie just kind of ends here kind of on this, like, hopeful note. Right. Whereas the book continues for a little bit longer. The one line that really got me, though, was Rochester. He said something about, like. Oh my God, like you're here. You're not like dead in some ditch. Yeah. And you just realize that like he thought she was probably dead. Yeah. Like she just left with like nothing. And he's been searching for her yeah. and there's been no warden. So he's like, I, I wanted to die because I thought we would be together again. Yeah. Like he was convinced that she was dead. And when you realize that, it's so sad. It is really sad. And like, even though it's super, super emotional to have them together, they're also kind of back to their their banter, right? She's kind of like teasing him. Yeah. And like in a way that she's like, I know it would make him feel better to get kind of riled up. <laughs> yeah. Like, because he's too depressed. So if I like irritate him, he'll get back to his usual like prickly, annoyed yes. self. She tells him about like Sinjin. Yeah. And like, yeah, he saved my life and he's like very handsome. And <laughs> and he's kind of going back. He's like, yeah, but what about like his brain? Like he's he's got a soft brain, right? He's like not very smart. She's like, oh, actually, he was like very well read. And he's like, oh, but what about like uh his manners, right? He probably yeah. wasn't that culture. Oh no, actually, like they're kind of like, it's kind of funny this back and forth between them yeah but you know you realize just how devastated rochester was how happy he is to have uh jane back but also not wanting to like put her in a position where she feels like obligated Mm -hmm. to be with him because he's like i'm blind and i'm missing a fucking hand now like i need help yeah and i don't want you to like be with me out of pity or anything Mm -hmm. and she's like very reassuring about like I love you, and I love your mind. And being with you uh, is better than anything else in the world. Like, I turned down this man that seemed perfect because he wasn't right for me, because he wasn't you, right? And I think, like, 
the contrast is very strong because we haven't had any time with Mr. Rochester in many, many pages, right? And so now that we're back with him, it feels right, you yes. know? And we can kind of get the sense of like how Jane and Rochester feel being together again because we're like, oh, we're back to that like fun dynamic, you know? Yes. And it's really emotional and sweet. And I, I even like shed a little tear or two. Like it was just so beautiful. And I think this is very interesting too because it's almost like they're more equal now. Yes. Jane has money now, and then Mr. Rochester is blind now. <laughs> so, like, their their positions have kind of, like, equalized. Yes, they have. And I also like, too, you know, we talked about a lot of this story from Rochester's perspective is, like, convenient, right? Like, the situation with his wife, and even the way that she died. Yeah. Is he like, tried oh, to help her. I tried to, you <laughs> yeah. know, uh, I tried, I definitely didn't push her. Everyone saw it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but honestly, him losing a hand and being blind now, like, that feels like real consequence. Like, it's not this, like, really tidy, convenient no. ending, right? Like, I mean, it's almost like God judged him. It is. Right? And it feels like... I don't, it, it feels right for the ending. Like, if he was just, even if he had just lost his house, like, that would have been, like, eh, whatever, you know? Yeah. Like, he didn't like it that much anyway, it didn't <laughs> seem like. Um, but he really suffered consequences for everything that happened, and like you said, it makes them feel more balanced now as a mm -hmm. dynamic. And so I really liked this situation. Yeah, and, and their reunion. And then we get a little kind of epilogue of them getting married. We have the iconic line, reader, I married him. And then Jane even says that, like, um, his vision started to return a little bit. Yeah. It wasn't what it was. Obviously, he's still missing an eye. A whole eyeball. Right? But that he was able to see and that when they had their first child, he was able to, like, see the child's face. And I'm like, oh, God. <laughs> that part really got me. <laughs> that he saw that he had, the child had his eyes or something like yeah. that. Yeah. That was very touching. And, like, it almost felt like a reward almost like I, I don't know we talked about like him being punished by god but now it almost felt like okay you two have like gone through a lot of shit i give you some of your vision back yeah almost. like it feels very divine <laughs> it in feels that very way. biblical for sure but very touching nonetheless yeah and just kind of she talks about how like they were just always together yeah and that that was like the best thing for them is just to always be together and be able to talk and just be in each other's presence and like uh it just gets me, Ian. It's I really like the ending. <laughs> also, Sinjin probably is dead. Yeah, Sinjin's like coughing in <laughs> India. <laughs> I don't know how I felt about the book ending with like a quote from him. I know. I also was like, we don't need this. I don't need more Sinjin. I like knowing he's probably dead. Yeah. But I don't need to like hear a quote from him. No. Uh, but I mean, that's it for both versions, Adina. Yeah, that's it. And uh, I don't think it will shock anyone <laughs> for me to say anyway. I don't know about you, Adina, but from my point of view, I think I maybe preferred the book. In this I think we situation. can safely say that the book wins this round. I mean, like we said, there's no way this movie can even come close to like the plot and the meatiness of this story in the time frame that it has. Yeah. And, you know, I think there is even still a better version of this movie that could exist, yeah. right? That, like, I don't know, has a more interesting Rochester and honestly a more interesting Jane even. Like, I think there's still yeah. improvement within this format for the film. But like we were saying, like, there's so much of what makes the book special is the details in the book. Like, Jane's perspective, like, the richness of the characters, mm -hmm. right? And, like... 
short of making it like a mini series that's very faithful. Yeah. And even in that context, can you actually get to the core of what makes this book so good? I know it is very unique. I mean, it's this character study, right? It's this strong female character. And then it's this gothic mystery. Oh, yeah. Right. But it's also like, and then that's over. Right. And then it's like kind of back to like the characters. Right. And it's this romance. But it's also about like relationships between like family and Sinjin and like all these other people. Right. And I just feel like it's so in depth and it's so interesting. And this book just like really captivates my interest every time I read it. Like yeah. I'm always thinking so much and uh, it's it's so thought provoking. It is. It really is. Yeah. I felt like I was constantly picking out like interesting little themes, right? Like at one point I noted how there was this constant like recurring sense of Jane's initial impression of something wasn't always accurate, mm-hmm. right? Like, oh, the first time that she went to the school Lowood, they had like the most disgusting meal she's ever seen. But actually, Uh, The cook had burnt it and that Miss Temple was upset about it. And then she gave them like cheese and bread and it was actually okay. Yeah. yeah. And I noticed like recurring moments like that where her initial impression of something wasn't really accurate. I mean, even her meeting of Mr. Rochester was like that. Yeah. And like just I mean, and there were like a hundred different things like that. Right. Where I was like, oh, that's interesting. Like, huh. And like, I just felt like I was mentally constantly engaged. Yeah. And the book was constantly exploring new ideas and delving deeper into the characters. Mm hmm. I'd say, like, maybe in the end part with Sinjin. Yes. Dragged a bit at points. Mm -hmm. But even to a degree, I think it was necessary in order to make his proposal to her and the conflict about that feel real. Yeah. And it also makes the reunion with Rochester feel so good. Yes. Because you're like, oh, finally, we're back. Yeah, I don't want to say, like, it was necessary for the book to get a little boring, but in a way, it did heighten, like, those moments, right? Yeah. Because if, like, they rushed the proposal of Sinjin, then it would have felt like, all right, another man is proposing to her, you know? Yeah. What does this mean? Mm-hmm. But it really felt like it took its time to build up to that. Uh, I mean, yeah, I thought it was a fantastic book. I really enjoyed it. I'm so glad you read this book, babe. This is like (laughs) one of my favorite books of all time. And it really means a lot that I forced you to read the podcast. (laughs) I mean, what is this podcast if not a way for us to force each other to read the books that we enjoy, right? (laughs) No, I mean, like, I I really, it took very little. I mean, I, I points had to, like, really put my nose to the grindstone to get it done within the time frame. Yeah. But, like, it wasn't, like, a chore to pick this book back up. Like, even at the beginning when it's just, like, her growing up and her in the school, like, even that stuff I found, like, very compelling. Yeah. So, uh, like, it was a really good read, and I really enjoyed it. So it's a book from both of us. Let's do Lightning Let's Round. Let's do Lightning. So first up for Lightning Round, we mentioned how uh, Jane was kind of, like, publicly humiliated at the school by the headmaster. Yeah. And I loved this part because at first she's like, oh my God, this is like my worst nightmare. This is everything I feared would happen. Cause he's like, oh, her aunt said she's a liar and she sucks and everyone shun her. Don't be friends with her. Yeah. And she's like, oh no, my life is ruined. But then she talks to Helen and Helen's like, Actually, everyone hates him. So, like, you're fine. Actually, we probably would have been suspicious of you if he liked you. So you're all good. And then on top of this, uh, Jane has a chance to explain this to Miss Temple. And Miss Temple, like, inquires. Like, she kind of, like, does this whole investigation and then finds out that Jane was telling the truth. 
and then like publicly exonerates her to the school yeah. is like not being a liar. <laughs> and I loved this. I thought I this know. was so great. It was so good that Jane had her name cleared. That was one of those good like reversal moments, right? Where at first it seems like this is the worst thing that could happen. And then it's like fine. Yeah. Uh, next thing from the book, uh, when Jane goes back to her aunt when she's dying, she catches up with her two cousins, uh, Eliza and Georgiana, um, and they're two opposite personalities, <laughs> right? Eliza is like this severe and like pious and restrained woman who has a 15 to like 15 minute schedule for herself throughout the day goes to church all the time is really severe and like quiet and like kind of mean right and Georgiana is just this silly stupid girl who just cares about dresses and flirting and parties right and it's just like I'm bored (laughs) and they like hate each other and there's this part where Eliza like tells Georgiana, she's like, as soon as our mom is dead, we're going to go our separate ways and I never want to see you again. In fact, if the whole world like ended and it was just to the two of us on earth, I would still not want to spend time with you. (laughs) (laughs) It's so funny because when you read about them as children, you're like, ah, the two sisters, whatever. They're probably like exactly alike. Yeah. And then as adults, they're like total opposites. (laughs) And it's so funny to find out about their lives. I love that. Uh, Next for lightning round. I loved this part where while Jane is being proposed to in this like four day marathon, at one point she talks to Diana and Diana is like, hey, what's going on with you two? Like, I, t- I sense some tension. And Jane just tells her everything. And at first, Diana is like, did he propose? Like, is he going to stay and not go to India? And Jane is like, oh, it's worse. He proposed, but he wants me to go with him to India. And I love Diana because she's like, oh, my God, you're not going to say yes, are you? And she's <laughs> you like, can't go to you India. You can't go to India. And she's like, don't worry, I'm not going to do it. She's like, oh, thank God. She's like, what is he thinking? She's just like... <laughs> A hundred percent on Jane's side I and know. like wants to hear everything and is like, yeah, Sinjin's kind of weird. Like he's an oddball. And like, I just love that Diana does not waver in her commitment to Jane. No. Uh, last for lightning round, uh, continuing on the Sinjin hate train, right? Because I, I dislike him so much. Yes. He is the villain of this story. Um, there's this whole part where Jane has got the good news that she inherited this money. So she's going to split the money between... Uh, Sinjin, Diana and Mary and herself and she's like they can come back from being governesses and like live in their home again I'm gonna like clean it from top to bottom I'm gonna buy all this food me and the housekeeper are gonna cook a bunch Um, it's like Christmas time it's gonna be like so nice and so festive she's telling all this to Sinjin and Sinjin's like um but like when are you gonna get back to like doing like important things and Jane is like um this is important and I just want to read this part so she says Uh, My ambition is to give them a beau ideal of a welcome when they come. Sinjin smiled slightly. Still, he was dissatisfied. It is all very well for the present, said he. But seriously, I trust that when the first flush of vivacity is over, you will look a little higher than domestic endearments and household joys. The best things the world has, I interrupted. No, Jane, no. This world is not the scene of fruition. Do not attempt to make it so, nor of rest. Do not turn slothful. I mean, on the contrary, to be busy. 
Jane, I excuse you for the present. Two months grace I allow you for the full enjoyment of your new position and for pleasing yourself with this late found charm of relationship. But then I hope you will begin to look beyond Morehouse and Morton and sisterly society and the selfish calm and sensual comfort of civilized affluence. I hope your energies will then once more trouble you with their strength. Like, I give you two months to enjoy your life. (laughs) Now that you have money. Before I get really judgy. Yeah. (laughs) Like, what a bitch. I know. But I love knowing that at this point, he's probably examining her to be his wife and go on this mission. and Testing her. This displeases him because he's like, I don't want you to be attached to this house or pleasantries, right? Yeah. Domestic comforts that aren't that nice. Uh. I'm like, ugh. That bitch. I hate you. (laughs) (laughs) That wraps up Lightning Round, though, and this episode. Thanks so much for listening. This was such a great one to get to discuss. I'm so happy we got to talk about Jane Eyre. Yes, it was a hefty book, but I'm so glad that it was worth uh, reading it. And that it made for just like a really good episode, I think. Yeah. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can become a patron and join us on Patreon. Patrons get access to our monthly bonus episodes, our schedules, our private Discord, and lots of other really cool things. Yeah. And if you can't join our Patreon, giving us a positive rating on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or any other platform is super helpful. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all those social medias. If you go to covertocredits.com, you can find links to all of those. Thanks again for listening to this episode, and we'll see you next time. See you next time. Bye. Bye.